I wanted to start off this morning by looking at a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 deals with the resurrection. And I think it would be encouraging for us to reflect on what is written there as we get into the Gospel of Mark in chapter 16 of Mark. Um, and in uh in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is arguing against those who don't believe that there will be a resurrection from the dead. And he's showing the essential, uh, how essential the doctrine of resurrection is to the gospel. For if there is no resurrection, then Christ did not rise from the dead. And Christ's resurrection is everything. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then our Christianity is nothing but a hoax. It's meaningless. It's worthless. And besides that, we're fools to be part of it. So if you would please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 22. Starting with verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, in fact, if the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now notice verse 17 there, that we would still be in our sins if it weren't for the resurrection. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then sin and death would have the last word, and there would be no hope for anyone. But in fact, Christ has risen from the dead. We see that in verse 20. And then in verses 21 through 22, we have the summary of redemptive history. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. All of us, every single person that has been born except for Christ, have come under Adam's headship. We are sinners condemned to death. 
but for all who trust in Christ and are united in him, these individuals will be made alive and will inherit the treasure of being resurrected unto eternal life. Again, the resurrection is everything. This is what we cling to. This is what we hope for in our Christian faith. As a matter of fact, you cannot be a true believer in Christ, a biblical Christian, if you do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Christianity stands or falls on the historical validity of this event. If Christ did not rise, we are fools to be here this morning. But Christ did rise, and therefore we can have peace that our sins are pardoned through His sacrifice. And we can have hope that our future holds glorious joy forever and ever. My friends, we need to be careful of those people who are so-called Christians who deny the resurrection. This is not Christianity. Jesus' life and death are meaningless apart from the resurrection. We would have no hope if he did not rise from the dead. People die and people are buried. That's the way it is. But people can't come back to life after they are dead and buried. So they cannot possibly save us. That's all to say that a dead Savior is no Savior at all. In order to have a Savior that's a true Savior, He must be a living Savior. He must be alive. He must be able to do something about death, which is the penalty of sin. There's only one person that fits that bill. That is the person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to save anyone from sin. And the proof of this is his resurrection. All other religious systems that teach anything else are false. Our hope is that Jesus not only died, but he rose again, showing that his death served the purpose for which it was intended. He successfully bore our sins on the cross. He satisfied God's wrath against sin. He is our propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath. And that fact that he rose again proves that. And so we're gathered here today to honor and worship Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who died and was resurrection, or resurrected. Because if Jesus never died and was never resurrected, we're all just sitting here a bunch of fools. But I'll tell you, here we are to the praise and glory of the Jesus Christ of Scripture, the true Son of God, a man attested by God who died according to God's plan and then was raised from the dead. He's our living Savior. He's our, our living Savior, our risen Savior. So with that, let's go ahead and look at the account of the empty tomb that we find in Mark. And interesting, we don't have any account of the actual resurrection, 
We don't know exactly what time that happened on Sunday morning. We don't know exactly how it happened, but we have abundant evidence that it did happen. And that's what Mark is interested in conveying to the readers of his gospel. He refers very specifically to the eyewitnesses, and these are identified by name. And these are people that the first century church would have been able to go to to verify. So I invite you to turn to our text, Mark chapter 16, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Mark chapter 16. Starting with verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who, had, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, as I've already stated, the resurrection is, is critical. It's, it's critical to show who can save us from our sins. And so it stands to reason that God will give sufficient data to prove this historical point. The resurrection is so important that it's in all four Gospels. It's in Matthew 28, it's in Mark 16, it's in Luke 24, and it's in John 20. The events of the resurrection are provable, and there are many eyewitnesses that establish this historical fact. That all starts right here. Mark's account, it's the briefest of all of them, but it is important. Keep in mind that all of what Mark is writing is uh, uh, Peter is the one who is giving them the information. He's communicating all these things to Mark. And so he would have probably talked with these women that were involved in this. And so what we see here is the resurrection of Christ and the reality of it was first discovered by who? Unbelieving women who specifically are identified by name. You might go, unbelieving women? Where do we get that? I'll show you in just a little bit here. Now, as we look, we see the first eyewitnesses are these women. But these women, they don't believe 
that Christ would be raised from the dead. You may remember that when Jesus was crucified, these three women are near the cross. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joses, and, and Salome. After Jesus died, two of the women followed to see where he was buried. Mary Magdalene and uh, Mary, the mother of James and Joses. Now, if you would please turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. And we'll look at verses 62 through 66, because here we see a little bit more detail. Starting with verse 62, we read, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Now I want us to stop there for a second because this is an important thing. You remember the, the Pharisees and the chief priests? They were seeking testimony against Jesus Christ with people who would say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. They were using that, not that Jesus would rise from the dead, but as a matter of insurrection against the Roman government. And so here, all of a sudden, they act as if they were believing he was talking about resurrection. What a bunch of liars. They knew all along that Jesus was talking about his resurrection. Now, remember that fact, that these guys knew he was talking about that. So continuing with verse 64, it says, Therefore, we, you know, when you see the word therefore, you have to see what the word was there for. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, this is interesting because what they meant to use to prevent the possibility of someone faking the resurrection, God actually used to show that this was a guarantee, that this, this independent testimony would come from the Roman soldiers. They were, were privy to that the fact that this was a resurrection. And there, just on a side note, isn't it ironic that Jesus' worst enemies understood he, predict, he predicted physical resurrection? But yet his own devoted followers, even if, if the words registered in their head at the time, they didn't believe it until after it happened. Isn't that amazing? We read in Luke 24, 25, where Jesus says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the prof 
all that the prophets have spoken. They knew through Scripture that this was going to happen. Now back to our text in Mark 16, according to verse 1, we read, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And so, just as soon as the Sabbath was over, the women went out and bought spices. Now, the Sabbath actually ended at 6 p.m. on Saturday. And at 6 p.m., all of a sudden, the stores were open, businesses were open, life got back to the hustle and bustle of normal activity. My goodness. I, to me, that seems strange. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel, had just been executed on Friday, and by Saturday at 6, yeah, it's back to normal. Oh, well. It's, it's, it's as if they're saying, you know what, Jesus, that, that, that guy, he had his day. I guess now we just get back to work. This just shows how callous the world is to the truth of God. But here these women were. As soon as the Sabbath was over, they went shopping. And this was really no diversion to pull them out of, out, out of depression. Rather, they went to buy spices so that they could honor Jesus by anointing his body in death. This was an expression of intense devotion. We have to remember that around Jerusalem, the climate there would have caused decomposition of Jesus' body by the time the women would have come to anoint him. And, and there, there would be a, just a stench of decomposition happening right there. And it would be pretty pretty bad. So they, they probably could have gone to the tomb earlier when the Sabbath had ended, but it was late in the afternoon. It was too dark to really do what they wanted to do. So they thought they'd wait until Sunday morning. Isn't that something how, uh, by the providence of God, that happened that way? So, John uh, 19, 38 and 40 tells us that uh, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus used spices in regard to Jesus' body, but apparently these women also wanted to anoint the body themselves to pay respects to Jesus. And the spices weren't bought, you know, some people think, well, it was sort of like an embalming, but Jews, Jews didn't embalm bodies. These spices were not to preserve the body in any way. It was really to designed to cover the smell of death, the stench of decay. Uh, and that would sort of remove them from the reality of death. They, they would walk past the tomb and instead of smelling the stench of, of a human corpse, they would smell this, this uh, sweet aroma of these spices. So I just need to point this out, and I'm coming back to where when I said these women were unbelievers. The women that are named here for the sacrifice they make in purchasing the spices are purchasing spices for a dead body. If they truly believed, they wouldn't have bought spices. They wouldn't have done that. 
the reality is they are buying spices and the reason they were is because of their unbelief. This is not an act of faith. This is proof that they don't believe what Jesus told them. Jesus had specifically told them that after three days he would rise again. We saw that in Mark 8.31. But no one believes this, not even these women. This makes the proof of resurrection even more credible. The women who will be the first to testify it didn't even believe it. Devotion to something doesn't necessarily equate to to saving faith. Many people that we know have a lot of religious, and I'm using that, I'll put it in air quotes, religious devotion, but they don't have faith in Christ. They may go to church every day. They may go and read their Bible every day and do good works and still not have a lick of faith. This really could all be done just to try to earn their salvation. Salvation by works. Here's the key, though. True saving faith produces works, not the other way around. Good works never produce faith. The statement found in James 2.20 but do, you, but do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? That means true faith in Christ always produces good works. In James 2.26, it says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Don't look at what a person does as proof of their faith. Listen to what they believe. And then you will see works as an outpouring of their belief. We shouldn't be worried so much about what we're doing. We should end up understanding that as we have belief, true saving belief, we will do stuff. We will be compelled to do that out of obedience, out of love, out of respect and honor for our Lord. We should be more concerned about being in Christ. We should be more concerned with whether we have gone from death to life. We should be concerned about being more conformed into the image of Christ. I always think it's funny where people go, well, you know what? We want to be Christ-like. Therefore, we're going to go out and do this or that. That is not the message of Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus Christ is that when you are in him, it's because of who you are will be what guides what you do. So in verse 2 of our text, it says, Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now, John 20, verse 1, tells us that these women took off for the tomb while it was still dark. And when the, the women took off, the sun had not yet come up. It's Sunday morning. 
And you have to remember, uh, Christ was crucified Friday morning and buried Friday afternoon. And so he was in the tomb Friday night and Saturday night. And now it's Sunday morning. And all the Gospels emphasize that this was the day that this happened. And actually, that's why we worship on Sunday. That's why the early church met the first day of the week. These religious systems that try to get people to work uh, worship on Saturday because they go, well, we need to get back to the Sabbath. They're demeaning the very day of Christ's uh, resurrection. And, you know, it really is one of the things that in this modern day, we have what is called the weekend. Technically, that's, that's because of the work week. But technically, the weekend would be Saturday. That's the weekend. Sunday is the first day of the week. The start of the week is Sunday. Jesus was nailed to the cross and he nailed the Sabbath day to the cross. And those groups who worship on the Sabbath make a mockery of this critical reality. I want to read a quote from the Puritan Matthew Henry. Commenting on this, he explained, and I quote, Never was there such a Sabbath since the Sabbath was first instituted as this was, which the first words of this chapter tell us was now past. During all the Sabbath, our Lord Jesus lay in the grave. It was to him a Sabbath rest, but a silent Sabbath. It was to his disciples a melancholy Sabbath, spent in tears and fears. Never were the Sabbath services in the temple such an abomination to God, though they had been so often as they were now, when the chief priests who presided in them had their hands full of blood of Jesus Christ. Well, this Sabbath is over, and the first day of the week is the first day of the new world. End quote. Now, we can't overstate what sort of monumental moment this is in history. But one proof of how historic this moment is, is the fact that the Jews who will come to embrace Christ as their Messiah, they stopped. They stopped um, uh, uh, looking at the Sabbath on Saturday and they started to look at Sunday as the day of worship, the first day of the week. Sunday becomes their Lord's Day. And the Sabbath is over in more ways than one. The author of Hebrews makes this point, that Christ is our rest. It is Christ who brings us into rest. Hebrews 4.11 says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now John MacArthur comments on this by saying, The last Passover happened at the end of the week and Jesus instituted uh, commemorating his death. 
And there was never a legitimate Passover since then. And there has never been a legitimate Sabbath since that weekend either. Everything changed on the first day of that week. Folks, we see the ramifications of this right away in the New Testament. We see in Acts chapter 20, what happened? Paul preached on Sunday on the first day of the week and broke bread. In 1 Corinthians 16 too, Paul instructs the church to put something aside as collection for the saints on the first day of every week. On the first day, Sunday, the Lord's Day. We see in Revelation 1.10 where John makes a, rever- a reference to the Lord's Day. He writes that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when all these visions began. In the New Testament, there is emphasis on Sunday as the day of corporate worship, fellowship, and giving. It's no longer Saturday that people are to gather for these things. It is now Sunday, marking the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that's what it's all about. And so continuing with verse 3 of our text, we read, And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Now, this conversation really does prove that the ladies aren't even thinking of resurrection. At this moment, they don't even for a second believe that Jesus would not be there, that he had risen from the dead. Because if they would, they wouldn't have been discussing the fact that uh, they were going and wondering how this was going to happen. How were they going to roll the stone? But this is the day that Jesus promised. He said that he would come back to life, but instead they're discussing this meaningless thing of the stone. All the way to the tomb, they're worried. Oh, how are we going to move the stone? When in fact, it had already been moved away. You know, sometimes I think we worry and fret over things that are meaningless, even though we see it in the Bible. Oftentimes, we just remember what the Word of God said. Uh, If we remembered what the Word of God said, we really wouldn't worry. But I think it's natural for us to to think in the way that these ladies did. We have to end up stop, think, and go, you know, what is our problem and what what does the Bible say? Just think, if the the ladies would have really, truly believed uh, the, the Scriptures and Christ when he had said, he will raise. That, they're just frazzled. And they're frazzled by the death of Jesus. And here their emotional state just overcomes them. They're really not prepared to even do what they had set out to do. No one at that time was talking about the potential of resurrection except for the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests. You know, Christ predicted this multiple times to all of his, his disciples, and no one believed it. You know, they assumed that the body that Joseph and Nicodemus put in the grave was still there. And the reason they do so is because of a number of reasons. And here's the first. 
because they, they lived in a culture of death. Uh, they, you think about how much propaganda that we have. You know, we sit there and we think, you know what? I need to start eating my vegetables. Mom was right. I need to do that because my, I will live longer. And what we really mean is probably won't die, but we don't say that. We sit there and go, well, you know what? If I start eating right, if I work out every day, if I do all of this, I can avoid and cheat death. You know what? The world is trying to tell you that. The world is trying to tell you, you can cheat death if you just live right. That's a lie from the pit of hell. By the way, I just checked this morning. Death rate of humanity is still 100%. Now, there are exceptions, Enoch and Elijah. But humanity as a whole experiences death. And not only is it something that these people back then had seen time and time and time again, they lived in a culture that actually promoted death. In fact, it was the Roman army, the representatives that were there placed around the tomb. They were commanded that if anyone tries to steal the body, take care of them. But, you know, there, the, the Romans also made sport of death in the arenas. They would, they would have this arena and they would see blood spilt and they would cheer and celebrate it. It was, it was you know, something where they would just be all excited. Ah, oh, you know, we get to see these people thrown to the lions or going up against a gladiator. And so what do we think? We're much more civilized than they were. We would never do that. Oh, yeah? Take a look at all the video games that are, that are played right now. Top games, all about dying, all about gruesome, blow their heads off, do whatever you want. The movies, the top grossing movies are all about death. And not only that, it's, it's the more gruesome it is, the, the better the, the film is. And then you have a culture that parades moms in the street. And I'm saying moms, because if you're pregnant, you're already a mother. But they're, they're parading around saying, I have the right to kill my own child. We just per, put perfume on the proverbial pig. We've glossed it up a little bit, but we still have this culture of death. And here's another aspect of their assumption. They've been to dozens of funerals, maybe hundreds of funerals, and they've never ever seen anyone come back from, from the dead. You know, they, I, I, I can imagine that what was going through these ladies' minds is, you know, someone has to take care of the body of Jesus. We can't just have him there without anointing him with spice and, and then honoring him. We, we just need to do something for him. 
And so here they are heading to the tomb, worried about how they're going to roll the stone away. But we see that their problem really isn't a problem at all. The story reads as if as they're walking, the, the sun comes up and they look and they see the tomb is open. Verse 4 of our text. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was large. Here, think about it. This massive stone that would have taken just a new a number of Roman soldiers to, to put it in place had been removed. And if the the simple point made here is that if the women were not expecting uh, a resur- that they weren't expecting a resurrection. The last thing that was on their mind is resurrection. They just wanted to honor their teacher and their hero. They just wanted to continue serving this person of Jesus Christ. They wanted to give him proper burial. And then they look up and they have a surprise. You know, they're walking in the dark. They're thinking about this stone, really large stone, it says. And when they get there, it's already rolled away. This is, this is something where you, you, you just think about it. They were so ill-prepared for this. Who did they think was going to roll it away so that they could get in the tomb? You know who rolled it away? God already rolled it away. And I don't want you to miss this. The reason why God rolled the stone away was not to let Christ out, but to let witnesses in. That is so nice, i got to say it twice. The reason why God rolled the stone away was not to let Christ out, but let the witnesses in. Jesus is God, and he could pass through walls and appear and disappear as he desires. He did not need the tomb to be opened to get out. God opened it so people could get in. And what we learn from Matthew 28, 1-4 is that God sent a violent earthquake and he sent his angel that simply rolled the stone away. In fact, when the angel rolled the stone away, he sat on the stone and the Roman guards were so afraid they literally were shaking. According to Mark chapter 4, the women got there, saw the stone uh, rolled away. But then as you look at verse 5 of our text, it says, and entering the tomb they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now, Mark doesn't identify this young man as an angel, but Matthew tells us that he was an angel. As a matter of fact, if you would please turn to Matthew chapter 28. We'll look at verses 2 and 3. Matthew chapter 28 starting with verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door 
and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. Now, do you see that word great there? That word great is megas, and it means violent, large, massive. This, this is something that oversteps the providence of, of uh, uh, the province of, of created being. This wasn't just a little rattle. This was an earthquake. What caused it? Read. And behold, there was a great earthquake. What's the next word? For. Or you could read that as because. Because of. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven. You see, this angel came like a missile. So much that he shook the earth. And this angel was in the form of a young man. I think it's amazing how God has used angels. He, he sent angels to announce the birth of Christ. And now he has an angel show up to announce the resurrection of Christ. And it says this man was like lightning. He was wearing gleaming robe as white as snow. And it says that the women were shocked and amazed. Well, first of all, because the tomb doesn't have the body in it. But secondly, here's this man who looks like something that they have never seen before. And Matthew 28.4 says, The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. All of a sudden... In the dark of night, there's an earthquake, a severe earthquake. And in the terror of this, the, the soldiers see this blazing angel roll a stone away and sit on it. And they're so, they're so terrified that they go into a coma. And you can see this all through Scripture. Ezekiel and Isaiah and others, they describe the same kind of thing. But here it's used to describe... Emotional surprise, perplexity, and even terif uh, being terrified. And there was this intense glow. And, and this intense glow sort of gives them divine anesthetic. So they don't even know what hit them. And so this angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. Now, at one point, the soldiers wake up from their stupor and they can, you just, you just think, well, what would they be saying? Uh, we don't know. But we do know that they saw the angel and the lights went out. And so now, here, they, 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 they have a problem. They see this angel, and this angel is very real and has very real responsibilities and we know that angels can intimidate but they can also encourage and they can be used either for our judgment or comfort as a matter of fact in verse 5 of our text it says that the women were alarmed some versions say they they were amazed that word alarmed is only used in the new testament in the Gospel of Mark. It's the word ekthambeo. And you see, 
this is something where these, these guys were also alarmed. These guys also were just overtaken with what they're seeing. And so these women, they show up. These soldiers, they're already gone. These soldiers are, are like, they couldn't believe what happened to them. So there's no one there guarding. You can imagine they, they woke up, they realized they had failed to do their duty. Now they have to report to Pilate and the Sanhedrin, tell them that they had failed their mission and that would not be a good thing. But you see, in verse 6 and 7 of our text, the angel talks to these ladies and it says, but he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Again, these women are in complete shock. You know, if you notice that no one really had witnessed the resurrection itself. These guards didn't. They were present, but they were like dead men. They were unconscious. The last thing they saw is the blinding light. They felt the earthquake. They wake up. And the one says, Hey, Rufus, you know what happened to us? I saw this light. It was shaking. This thing was crazy. But then I woke up and I saw you. And I woke you up. You can just imagine. They're just sitting there going, the stones rolled away. And man, we see this guy sitting there. Just bright. Well, by the time the women come, apparently the angels must have hit the set settings button and turned down the brightness of his appearance. Because they're able just to talk to him. They're still amazed. But they're amazed that he's sitting there as he is. Matthew and Mark focus on just one angel. Luke tells us that there were two angels in the tomb. Now, this isn't a contradiction because they're just talking about the one who spoke, the one who was sitting to the right. The other one was probably sitting on the left. This isn't a contradiction. This is just going... This is, this is, we're focusing on this one angel. But here's something that we can't miss here. When Luke says that there were two angels, the resurrection of the Lord is confirmed by the testimony of two angelic beings. And that testimony is passed on to three human beings. If you remember, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so we move from the angelic witness of the resurrection to the human witness. And if you haven't noticed already or figured this out, he removes all doubt of who he is by showing supernatural 
knowledge of everything that's happening. Look at verse 6 again. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where he was laid. I want to mention that this is a bit of a rebuke because he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. That word seek in the Greek is the word zetheo, and it means to desire, endeavor, or inquire. And it's actually used 10 times in Mark. Every single time it's used, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. They were looking for Jesus on the third day, and the one place that he told them again and again that he wouldn't be. See, they only half understood what he was saying, even though it was said plainly. When it comes time to apply it, they don't remember. Now, Mark spares us the details, but John 26 and 7 mentions what happens that it mentions the linen wrappings that were lying there, the faith, face cloth that was rolled up and placed by itself. And so here you can see very clearly that this couldn't be the work of grave robbers because no thief is going to go out of the, uh, through the trouble of unwinding the body, carrying it off, and not only that, taking the face cloth and folding it. There's something extremely unusual that's happening here. And that's what the writers of the Gospels want you to see. These, these, these people that saw this, they were alarmed by what they were seeing. The angel said, don't be alarmed. But the angel addresses all of their expectations of what they thought they would see. The angel explains everything. And then he shows them the grave clothes, everything. And he says, he's risen. He's not here. In verse 7, the angel speaks to the women, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go tell his disciples and Peter. You see the angelic visitor commission the women as messengers to go tell the disciples and he made sure to, to single out Peter because Peter needed to hear this good news. At this point, Peter is being sifted by Satan like wheat. He's crushed. He's broken not only by the death of Christ but also by his threefold denial We need to remember we serve a God who forgives sins. One who continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so this angel, he wanted to point out Peter. Make sure you tell him. Peter, remember, must have been broken. Because all of these predictions about the death Mark records three times when Jesus told him about the death and resurrection. In Mark 10, 33 and 34, it says, the Son of Man will be delivered 
over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. We've seen this in chapter 8, 9, and 10. And the disciples were just confused, even though Jesus said it as clear and plain as he could. He also predicted that they would all desert him. In, in Mark 14, 27, 28, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's a sad prediction with a happy promise. The disciples are going to fail. They're going to flee. But then Christ will regather them after he's been raised. And of course, the disciples don't know what to make of this prediction. They're trying to assure Jesus that he's wrong, that they won't fall away, and especially Peter. He says, even though all the rest fall away, I will not. But Jesus is even more um, emphatic with his prediction of Peter. He says, truly, I tell you, the very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. The disciples, and especially Peter, failed. They deserted Jesus. And that's why this message to the women, via uh, Jesus' message via the angel, is so wonderful and so encouraging. Because the angel says in verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I'm really convinced that Peter is communicating this to Mark. And this was an important time in, Jesus, in Peter's life. Peter's feeling low. He's feeling like a loser. He failed. Not just once, but three times. And, you know, just imagine what it would have been like for these women to go back and tell Peter that they saw an angel. And you know what, Peter? He wanted us to specifically tell you about this news. All these disciples, they didn't live up to their promises that Christ made. Or, or that they didn't live up to the promise that they made to Christ. But Jesus lives up to his. And I think we ought to find great help, hope in that. That Jesus restores frail, frightened people to, to faith. So often I feel frail and I feel like I fail to serve the Lord as I ought to. And I get sort of selfish or even scared. I feel fickle at times and weak. But I also think that many of us think, if you're thinking that you don't deserve a second chance from God, just remember, you didn't, you didn't deserve the first one either. I find assurance in the fact that my union with Christ depends upon Him, not my performance. It's not my performance that jeopardizes my, my relationship to Christ. It's His that keeps me and secures me because my salvation depends upon Him. He will never fail because His sovereign grace is poured out on me. 
So those words tell Peter, they should be great encouraging words to us as well. And so finally in verse 8, so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone. What's going on here? Well, they were in shock. But they're human beings like us. I think it's very interesting that Mark doesn't want to paint them into the, the role of superheroes. So many people, when they read this, they try to, oh yeah, the faith of the women, that was... No, he's trying to show the frail, frailty of all people. Because that's what we are. We're frail. So he doesn't try to hide their sin and their fear. Doesn't try to hide their bewilderness or, or their, their, their shock. He just describes it. He describes it the way it happened. He describes their disbelief, their utter confusion. We see it all. We see all of it. And that should give us great faith in the authenticity of the Word of God. So many times people see us crying. They see us in fear. They see us worrying. They see us struggling. We need to realize that's what these women were going through. The same thing. They were gripped by all of this. But they were faced with a reality that had the most important impact. The reality is, He is risen. Folks, that truth needs to shake us out of our natural way of thinking. We need to shake in our boots at the implication of He is risen. We need to let that affect us. And does it? I'm telling you, it must. It must. It must this morning and forever after. Jesus has risen from the dead. In His resurrection, God reversed the curse of Genesis 3. Our sin caused estrangement from God has been replaced by communion with Him. And this communion is only accessible through faith our confident assurance of what we believe to be true, even when we don't see it with our natural eyes. We live increasingly in this faith-accessed reality, and we progress, and we are renewed day after day. We are being transformed, and we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And even though we can and should live with the awareness of our identity as, as the redeemed of Christ, we should also live with the hope and reality of the final consummation that will come at the second coming of Christ. Because it's then when His resurrection will be fully realized. 
He is the first fruit of those raised from the dead, and He will raise us both spiritually and physically. And at that point, we will be true to the image that God intended us to be when He created. And we will know Him. And as the sons and daughters of God, we will know that His purpose and plan has been secured for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would really weave the truth of Christ's death and resurrection into our lives every day. And that that would give us a new breath of life and hope. And I pray that it would open doors of opportunity for us to remember the union that we have with Christ and also to be able to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are still in their sin. Lord, we do anticipate your second coming where there will be the renewal of our bodies into incorruptible, incorruptible glory where we would live with you for all eternity. Lord, we are tired and we are broken and we are in need of your mercy and grace. And so we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. But while we wait, give us the wisdom and grace and power to walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' most precious and glorious name.